Hi everyone, my name is Miles Surratt and I serve as the Associate Director of Campus Activities and Events at Clemson University. I'm also happy to be your host for the NASA Leadership Podcast presented by the Student Leadership Program's Knowledge Community. Today we'll complete our series on foundational questions in leadership and our conversation will, will range in a couple of different directions, but we'll focus on the notions of leader development and leadership. My guest today is Dr. Carrie Priest. Carrie is an Assistant Professor in the Mary Lynn and Warren Staley School of Leadership Studies at Kansas State University. Her undergraduate and graduate course courses focus on civic leadership development, socially responsible leadership, community engagement, and organizing. Carrie's research agenda explores the intersections of leadership development and, and engaged teaching and learning in higher education with an emphasis on questions that emerge from interpretive, collaborative frameworks of social change. She is currently working on scholarship addressing questions of leadership identity, leadership educator identity, and critical and engaged uh, pedagogies from leadership development. Carrie earned her PhD from Virginia Tech and master's degree from the University of Georgia. Welcome, Carrie. Hello. Uh, all right, so we will uh, so we'll get started here uh, with uh, with a regular segment that we have called Rapid Fire. So, Carrie, are you ready for the pressure of uh, of these rapid questions? Sure. Okay, great. So let's start here. Uh, you grew up on a cattle ranch in Kansas. What do most people not understand about uh, growing up on a cattle ranch? Yeah, well, I grew up in northeast Kansas, and I would say it was more of a farm than a ranch. Um, okay. uh, we weren't quite as sprawling as what you might see out in, in western Kansas. But um, growing up with cattle and on a farm and part of a farm family, um, you know, it was a lot of hard work. It was a lot of physical work. Um, but I learned a lot from that. You know, even on days where you don't feel like going outside and doing chores, right, like chores have to be done. And, um, and when you're working in an environment that's, you know, constantly changing and it's kind of unpredictable, right, with the weather and just lots of different things, you just have to learn to be flexible and adaptive. And you really have to lean into family. And so I'd say, like, the biggest takeaway for me of growing up on a farm was um, – the value of hard work and just the value of family. And to this day, when my um, parents call, because I don't live that far away, and they need help on the farm, um, you know, that's an important thing for me to be able to give back and, and, and um, connect uh, with home that way. Do you have any particular, uh, particular talents on the farm? Like, is there something that your parents would call you and they'd be like, oh, we've got to get carried out here because this is something she's particularly good um, at? Well, that's a great question. Um, a lot of times what uh, I go home and help with is when we have to work cattle or move cattle in some way. And really that's because it's an all-hands-on-deck kind of job. Um, I'm pretty good at uh, rounding up the cattle in the pasture. We don't have horses or four-wheelers. We have feet. Mm. So, um, you know, uh, <laughs> getting out there and, and helping get the cattle in, I'm uh, pretty good at sorting, pretty good at moving gates around. But honestly, more recently, I tend to be the one that's, like, taking notes, right? I'm also pretty organized, so when we're trying to keep track of a lot of cattle coming through and keeping records, I often get um, to be also the note-taker. Okay, good, good. I, you know what? I actually had cattle farm written down in the question beforehand, and uh, and then I was like, well, our, our cattle, is there a difference? I feel like it's always a ranch. I don't know. I don't know. Very, it might just be uh, how you identify as you're growing up. I think of ranches as being a little more expansive, but I would I would say we were a farm. Okay, great. So, 
I also know that you play the guitar and have a uh, a fairly obscure musical dream. Could you could you share that aspiration with us? Sure. Uh, yeah, I I definitely love music, and it has always been my dream to be a backup singer. Um, I'm really not picky for what, but I you know I've always just thought it would be so much fun. Um, in a band or for someone to be to be a backup singer. And it could be because I just love singing harmony. Uh, maybe this is a metaphor for my life and my commitment to collaboration. I'm not sure. But uh, I, I love the idea of performing with someone and helping, you know, enhance the sound through, through backup singing. So if anyone's looking for a backup singer, you know, I'm available. Great. Yeah, no, I uh I wish I I wish I had a band to I wish I had a band to invite you to. Uh, so uh you when, when we were discussing this uh in advance, you used a phrase that I thought was really interesting. You said that you've always been really trying to fully claim your identity as a runner. Um and I do think that that is like a I it just really touched on something for me. I just think that that's a very uh, a very apt phrase related to how people think about themselves related to exercise and running in particularly. So my question is, do you feel like you fully claimed your identity as a runner? Uh, I don't know. Can we ever fully claim our identity as a runner? I'm in the process. I'm in the process. So where this came from for me was for many years I was just surrounded by people who ran, and I never thought that I was a runner. I mean, I run a little bit, but I just never liked it that much. And my sister is a runner, and she would always try to get me to run 5Ks with her, and I'd always say no. And then finally, she convinced me to sign up for a half marathon. So going from not being a runner to running a half marathon, there's a little bit of pressure there to prepare. So this was last year, and I spent a lot of the fall um, running and was really just amazed at my own ability once I was intentional about it to to run further and further distances and, and was really I'm really thankful to um, have had that ability and so uh, yeah so I competed in my first uh, half marathon last November it was probably the worst I've ever felt physically but also the best mm-hmm. right I had accomplished something that I never imagined I could do. And so just even on days when I am like, you know, I haven't been out running for a while, I can remind myself, like, I, I am a runner, and, and, and I, can, I can do more than I thought I could do. So it's, it's, been, a, it's been a neat journey. Cool. Yeah, no, I, uh, uh, I think that there's a lot of uh, sort of relative identities like that when I was in in college and post-college, I did not think of myself as an outdoorsy person. Uh, I was a Boy Scout growing up and uh, and had and worked at a Boy Scout camp for a long time. But I just, it was a very comparative thing, you know. Like my best friend uh, was going to was going to and did hike the AT when we finished college. Like compared to him, who was like making his own camping stove in our apartment, like uh, I was not yeah. outdoorsy. <laughs> and then I moved to Washington D.C. And I went on an outdoor orientation trip as a learning partner like four days after I started there. And it was like, oh, maybe I am outdoorsy. You know, it's just like a, a you know, you switch context and you're put in a different situation. It can kind of change things. Well, it's also a great metaphor to use in my classroom too, right? Because it's 
like when we get towards the middle part of the semester or towards the end, I can really say with confidence now, okay, I know this feels like we're at mile 10 of a half marathon, right? There's three <laughs> miles to go, you're tired, you're worn out, but we can do this, right? So it gives us this kind of whole new perspective of, uh, of, of uh, what we can do. Yeah, absolutely. So I understand that you're a fan of Game of Thrones and Outlander, and both are fantasy, fantasy genre shows adapted from well-regarded and really widely read books. However, Game of Thrones is one of the biggest shows in the world, and Outlander is popular but not on Game of Thrones level. So why do you think that is? Well, that's, that's a really great question. Um, I honestly have not read either series, so I am definitely – um, was introduced to these series through the TV shows. And, and like you said, I'm a, I'm a fan of both Game of Thrones, of course, first, and more recently, Outlander. And I think for both of the shows, right, there's this um, connection to story and these kind of epic, either pseudo-historical or um, some, or maybe more... Uh, I guess fantasy historical versus and pseudo historical element to them, and just this cast of characters that you really grow to know and almost um, love as like friends, right? Like it's like we have these emotional connections to these people. We keep coming back week after week, and and it's really awesome how stories can do that. Um, why is Outlander not as popular? I can only speak from my experiences that I just didn't know about it as soon. It's only had a couple seasons, um, and and maybe it's on a more obscure channel, right? Like so, it's. Uh, I think I started watching it because I had like a free ten day trial of Stars or something like that, and, <laughs> and I got hooked. But uh, yeah, I I definitely think they're similar in um, kind of scope and. Uh, and story, and uh, and Game of Thrones has more seasons, so that might be just might have a jump on it in that case. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah. I've been uh, I've been wondering that question recently, so this just gave me an opportunity to think about it a little more. Okay, so let's finish up by opening the gripes tab. Carrie, can you tell us about students coming to your office without anything to write with? Yeah. So when you ask me this question, I'm like, oh, what, what should I say? Um, but when I was thinking about it, something that just kind of drives me crazy uh, is when folks come to meetings, uh, students show up to meetings in my office, or maybe if we're even in group meetings, with nothing to write with. Um, I've advised student organizations, and I've taught a lot of classes where I have one-on-one -on -one meetings with students, either to do planning or coaching or other kinds of, you know, sessions where we're thinking about things and coming up with ideas for the future. And, and there's moments where I'm like, should, should we write this down, right? And I'm always taking notes because that's just how uh, I roll. And that's also how early in my career I just learned it's really important to always take notes when, when you're in meetings. Um, and so I think the thing that is most, my, my biggest gripe is not so much that they don't take notes, but then at the end of the meeting, if they turn to me and ask to take a picture of my notes, that uh -huh. feels like a little much, right? Like a little much dependence on me as the authority. Um, and 
or, or ask to take a copy of my notes with them. So my goal in life as an educator is also to help people recognize that note-taking is very important. Even if it's on your phone, take notes. And don't ask me to take a picture of mine. <laughs> okay, great, great. Okay, so um, our next segment is uh, Higher Ed, Two Truths and a Lie. So, Carrie, I am going to provide you with two true stories from Higher Ed Current Events and one lie, and you're going to have to parse out the lie. The theme, okay. this, time is, the theme this time is Southern Care. Are you ready for your options? Okay, sure. Okay, great. So LSU recently attracted uh, controversy. The university announced that despite animal welfare concerns, Mike the Tiger, uh, their living tiger, uh, Bengal Tiger mascot, would continue to attend football games. LSU President F. King Alexander announced, after careful consideration, no one is going to keep Mike from supporting his tigers on the field. So that's your first option. Okay. Your second option is that Shenandoah University in Virginia recently announced a new policy related to on-campus child care. Children up to three months old are welcome to come to campus with parents on a regular basis. Additionally, older children are welcome to join parents at work if other care options fall through. This policy has been hailed as a potentially transformative one in the realm of employee support. So that's your next option. And then your final option is that the Bass Fishing Club at Western Carolina University drove 850 miles to eastern Texas to provide emergency support in the wake of Hurricane Harvey. Ten members of the group in four boats rescued 41 people, 10 cows, and one cat. When asked about his feelings, their faculty advisor said, of course I'm really effing proud, and I hope you print it that way. So those are your options. You have LSU and Mike the Tiger. You have Shenandoah University Child Care. And you have Bass Fishing Club, uh, Hurricane Harvey Relief at Western Carolina University. All right, so I'm picking the lie? Yes, you are picking okay. the lie. Mm -hmm. Okay, I'm going to go with option one. You're going to go with option one. You think that yes. that is the lie? Yes. Okay, talk me through, talk me through your logic. Okay, well, I just love the third story so much I want it to be true. I think uh -huh. that's And um, the second story about child care policy, I think I also want that to be true. That sounds really progressive and um, supportive and inclusive of, um, of students and, and faculty with families. Uh, so, again, I want that one to be true. And um, the third one... Or, the, or I guess the first one that I said was a lie about Mike the Tiger. Um, I guess it's the one I'm least connected to, so I don't really have a stake in it either way. Okay. All right. So you have you have willed it into being. You are correct. Um, yeah. So Shenandoah University, that's a real policy. Uh, they recently announced that. Um, so that, that is really progressive and cool for, for uh, working parents. That's really neat. And uh, the Bass Fishing Club at Western Carolina University did really do that, which I think, which I also think is really cool, and I agree with you. Um, and their advisor did not say effing, by the way, just as a <laughs> note. He he sent that in. Uh, he sent that in to a media outlet, and said that uh, he had no uh, no regrets about his language choice. So um, so those are uh, those are true. Uh, LSU actually. Uh, did the exact opposite of this. They did uh, just get Mike 7, their 7th uh, Bengal Tiger, and have decided that Mike is not going to go to football games anymore. They are going to keep him on campus. They do have a vet school there. 
and they think of it as like a really important tiger sanctuary, and you can still go visit Mike in his habitat, but he will not be going to football games anymore. So that uh, that was that was a lie. So uh, congratulations on getting that right. I'd say that we have approximately a thirty-three percent, a thirty-three percent correct uh, guessing. So uh, well, you were great. in that 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 top thirty-three percent there. Awesome. Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. So our next uh, segment is designed to help listeners understand you as a person, as a professional, and it's called Getting to Know Carrie. So our first question is what led you into leadership education? Oh, uh, also a great question and kind of a long story, so I'll keep it short. Um, when I, I mentioned growing up on a farm, and I was really involved in um, youth development around um, FFA uh, and 4-H, so agriculture-based youth development programs. And that was really my introduction into leadership. Uh, I had opportunity to hold leadership roles and participate in leadership training through those organizations and really, um, and, and, and agricultural education on into high school, and I really loved that. Met a lot of people, found a lot of great role models, and uh, realized that this was like a pathway that I wanted to be a part of. So I actually went to school to study agricultural education because I wanted to be a high school ag teacher and continued to be involved in these groups and holding leadership positions while in college and, and being involved in doing leadership training um, as a college student. And I actually got a leadership studies minor. So when I was in college, I was part of um, one of the first classes of leadership studies students even here at Kansas State. Um, and... But it's funny because I never thought about being a leadership educator, like in the sense I am now, until until later on. It didn't it, it didn't connect with me that that was like a professional pathway at the time. I just knew I really liked doing leadership. And um, long story short, I ended up not going into agricultural education. I decided to um, move to Georgia, and I took an internship with a leadership development company down there, um, a company that did leadership training and conferences and sold books and, and did a lot of work uh, in kind of the um, public and private leadership development world and learned a lot there, had, a, had some great experiences um, working, working there in that organization and uh, for, for a few years. And then uh, it's funny because I was actually back in Kansas at, at another school uh, connecting with a friend, and I met someone who was the director of their leadership studies program. And that was like a light bulb moment for me where I thought, you know, I think I would really like to teach leadership in college or, or teach leadership to college students. And then I remembered, right, that, oh, I had been a college student in leadership studies programs. Like, so then my next question was, like, how do, how do I become that, right? Like, what do I have to do? Um, I, again, I wasn't sure of, like, what the pathway was for that. Um, I had been trained to do, you know, um, secondary education, but not necessarily how do you become a college teacher. So connecting with some friends and folks, I, uh, I realized, well, you need to, you know, go back to school. You need to have at least a master's degree to teach in college and, um, and or a Ph.D. And so that kind of put me on a pathway into um, academia. I went to uh, the University of Georgia for my master's since I was living in Georgia at the time. I went to Virginia Tech for my Ph.D., um, actually both in colleges of agriculture, but programs that um, really focused on uh, leadership development, leadership training for teachers, and then um, for um, undergraduate students. And, and I 
my PhD uh, program, I was a graduate assistant with the Leadership Studies minor program and got to really um, engage more in an interdisciplinary undergraduate leadership program. And then that uh, kind of set the path for me to think about what that might look like um, in my own profession. And then um, so I've been here at K-State uh, in a faculty role working primarily with undergraduates, now more with graduate students in uh, a leadership studies program and focusing my work around um, advancing uh, forms of leadership education. Awesome. Um, so on a, on a related note, as a part of that journey, uh, I know that this for many people is like picking between, uh, you know, picking between your favorite family member. Uh, but what is the best book about leadership? I, I saw that question on the list, and I was like, I cannot answer that um, for two <laughs> reasons. One, um, there's just there's just too many, right? But two is um, I have one of my strengths is like input, and or two of my strengths are input and learner, and so every week I have a new best book, right? Like I just love reading. And, and as I've grown and as I continue to grow, there's so many great books. And so rather than naming a, one book, I, I want to encourage people to read widely. Um, I think, yes, we can um, grab hold of like a particular idea or, and, and be inspired by one particular book or author, but I think particularly as leadership educators, we need to be informed by lots of perspectives. And so uh, the best book about leadership is the one you're reading right now. And then find the next one that you want to read to and let that inform who you are and who you're becoming and the work that you're doing. Okay. Awesome. Um, so uh, my last question in this segment um, is um, – what do you think that most people don't understand about the, the faculty experience? So one day when I was at my chiropractor, I was telling her a little bit about what I did. She asked me if, what classes I was teaching this semester, and I told her, you know, I teach two classes in the fall, and um, but, but I'm pretty busy. And she was like, in a very, very kind way, was like so... I mean, other than, like, teaching those two, two classes, what what do you do, right? Like, it was a really genuine um, curiosity, like, it, because that doesn't seem like that much, maybe, <laughs> to teach, like, two classes twice a week. And and I guess from the outside, that's true. But, um, but part of the faculty experience, um, for example, I have a teaching and a research and a service appointment. And for me, it's really important that all of those are very integrated. I consider myself to be a community-engaged scholar, which means that my teaching and research and service all support in one another. And so a lot of my time is spent um, thinking about how those things are integrated and um, developing courses, meeting with students, advising um, being in the community, um, engaging with potential partners and collaborators, um, doing research, writing papers and book chapters and, and uh, other forms of scholarship, and then supporting students who are also trying to do that as well um, and, and encouraging students to develop um, scholarly works and whether that's undergraduate research um, through our classes or, or through advising like um, 
you know, dissertations and theses and things like that. So somehow uh, the days do manage to get very full. Um, and so the faculty experience in, encompasses a lot more than just, um, you know, teaching a few classes. So I think that's the thing that might be mostly misunderstood. Okay. Awesome. So uh, for our last segment, we're going to go through uh, six big leadership questions here. And similar to the previous podcast in the series, uh, the topic of leadership development and leadership is obviously not solvable or able to be summarized adequately. So basically, I'm handing Carrie an impossible task here. So Carrie, first off, I'm mainly sorry. And second off, are you ready for the first question? Sure. Let's go. Let's go. Okay, great. So, you know, just small question here, just to establish a baseline. What is your definition of leader development? Okay, so when I think of leader development, I think of a person. I think of people, right? And the development of people to exercise leadership. And so, Formally, you might think of that as trying to expand your capacity to be effective in leadership roles or processes. And when I think about leader development, um, my mind also goes to developmental readiness. I know that's a topic that's really um, popular in the literature right now, or it has a lot of attention, because when we're, when we're trying to develop people, um, to exercise leadership, there's things like our identity, whether that's personal and social identities or and leadership identities, efficacy, motivation, and um, mo- uh, multiple factors that play into our readiness to develop. In fact, I'm thinking about um, some of the scholarship um, that Becky Reichard and some of her colleagues have done that suggests Um, you know, in terms of, for example, identity, right? Um, That if someone doesn't see themselves as a leader, they're not as likely to even pursue leader or leadership development. So some of these readiness factors are are really, really important in thinking about how we expand our capacity. So when I think about leader development, I guess in essence I'm thinking about how, how is a person developing? Okay. All right. So same deal here. Similarly unfair question. How would you define leadership for the purpose of this conversation? Yeah. How would I define leadership? Okay. So the way I define leadership is as an activity or as a practice. If leader development is about a person developing their capacity, then leadership development is about enhancing the collective capacity to engage in the work of leadership. And so that leads to a second question, I think, that's maybe more important than like, what is leadership. But, and, and we've heard this um, before, or you've likely heard this before uh, in, in, in the literature or in from different folks, but it's the question, leadership for what? So rather than what is leadership, the question we should be asking is leadership for what? Um, the what, the why, the purpose of our work 
has a lot of impact on the ways that we would approach it. Um, so when I'm trying to enhance my collective capacity to engage in the work of leadership for, for example, social change, for um, improving uh, and enhancing the work of my team or organization, um, having that kind of clarity of purpose impacts the type of development that I might be seeking out. Okay. Uh, so how do you see in practice the concepts of leader development and leadership as similar and distinct concepts? So again, in, it's, it's the, uh, the way I think about them is almost as if one is situated within the other. They're connected. So um, as I develop as a leader, and as I'm expanding my capacity as, as a leader, that impacts the way I exercise leadership, the activity I, uh, in the way I lead. And there's a lot of evidence across the literature and a lot of uh, different ways that this is conceptualized. When we think about our leader development or our leader identity development, that, um, that this development tends to happen from a, like a, like a self-oriented or personal level um, towards a more collective level. So our development, there's like a pattern to how we grow as a leader. And it often starts with um, perspectives that are more focused on self, identifying self as a leader, taking on that identity, um, thinking about um, our leadership for what might be a little more self-focused. And we might still at this point be dependent on authority or on others for how we see ourselves as a leader. Um, and then moving again towards uh, more relational ways of thinking about um, self with others uh, and seeing self as more independent as a leader, like taking on more roles and then moving towards more collective views, um, understanding self in relation to systems. Uh, our leadership is for something bigger than ourselves, often more society or community oriented. And so as our perceptions of self and, and our capacities of self grow, and the knowledge and the skill and abilities related to those areas grow, um, it shifts how we're exercising leadership as well. So our, our practice of leadership moves maybe from more simple to more complex. We start integrating more um, systematic perspectives um, and relational perspectives as we grow. So I see them as very um, connected in terms of as my individual capacity grows, my practice shifts and changes, and I'm able to move from just a self-focused towards a more collective-focused way of, of exercising leadership. Okay. Awesome. So I, uh, I recently read an article that made, me, uh, that made me think about this issue just a little bit differently, and I, I thought maybe we could talk about it for a moment. So it's by um, Nathan Heller, and it was in a recent um, issue of The New Yorker. Um, and it reflects on, it's basically a discussion about the, the long-term impact of, of recent protest movements. And he specifically references the Occupy Wall Street movement and talks about uh, Turkish protesting in Turdigan and, and that sort of stuff. And he argues 
for a more proto-institutional type of social movement, which is uh, a little more vertical, a little less horizontal. And um, so from your experience, do you think that the hypothesis here holds, and, and what impact do you think that that suggestion has on student leadership development? So I'm thinking about this question. I don't think there's one way of approaching change and or approaching a social movement. Um, when I think about preparing students to go into contexts where they're trying to create change, what, what I think is important is helping them understand how change happens and their role in it. Okay? So thinking about how do we mobilize people to make progress on tough challenges? That's kind of a guiding question that we use here when we're trying to prepare students to do this work. So mm -hmm. obviously in our society today, we have a lot of contexts um, and a lot of situations that are cre creating this container for us to really ask this question and creating this opportunity for us to think about what's our role in, in creating change. It's like we don't have to create these artificial spaces for students to exercise leadership. It's happening right now, um, on, whether that's on our campus, in the broader communities that we're in at a national level. Um, there's a lot of energy happening around, um, around um, social issues, and, and our students are right there and, and present with it. So I think the question is, um, you know, okay, we're trying to develop students who can engage in these processes, whether it's more horizontal or vertical. Um, to me, it really depends on what the kind of change is you're trying to create. So how do we help students understand their own theory of change? How do we help them think about the type of, um, what the issue is, what the challenge is, who the players are that are involved, what's the systems that are involved? How does systems power and identity play into this? Like being able to understand kind of like what I, when I was talking before about developing the capacity to think at a systems level, that's a really advanced way of, of thinking and practice. And it takes a lot of um, uh, development to, to get into that kind of space. But how do we help people see the context in the system that they're in? And then understand what kind of um, interventions, what kind of direct actions, what kind of um, work needs to be done to create the outcomes and the impact that you're looking for. And oftentimes when we're talking about social movements, we're trying to change um, institutional structures and systems, we're trying to change policies, but we're also trying to change mindsets and the way people are thinking. And so, um, so so the, the, in, the um, outcomes have to happen at individual levels and, and group levels and in you know, community and structural levels. So the question is like how do we help students understand the process and then think about what are the types of things that would help make progress towards, towards those goals. And that could be protesting, right? Like that might be a direct action that's needed. If, if you're operating in a system that seems unjust and this is um, one action that's required, and so you're going to, it's an immediate th response to, for example, we had an incident on campus where um, some folks were, had posted some white nationalist, white supremacist flyers, and a group of students came together and they um, organized uh, a rally in solidarity, um, and we, uh, on, our, on our campus, and um, went to SGA, and 
um, you know, asked for direct action, those types of things in that moment um, were good choices, right? But long-term, to create systematic change, there also has to be um, other forms of, of leadership practice going on. And so part of our work is helping students think about when I see the big picture and I see what I'm trying to do, what are the different types of practices that I could deploy and, and how do I do that? And um, from a developmental standpoint, recognizing that there's different approaches and um, what, what will be most effective in moving towards that change we're looking for. Um, so that doesn't directly answer your question, but I think as an educator, the, that's the bigger question I'm looking for, is that there's not like one or the other. Um, in terms of structure, it's knowing how do we, uh, how do we know how to read the system and engage in practices and, ex and experiment with, with different practices that will help make progress. Okay. Does that make Great. sense? I, I mean, yeah, I think absolutely. Um, okay. I think that I, I think that recognizing. I mean, specifically the sort of immediate recognition that we're not dealing with a binary here. I think is, uh, you know, I think is, I think is valid. Um, you know, I, I just think that 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 article and that notion, um, in a way, there is a um, there is a, a a bit of a dogma in the field mm -hmm. that is that is pro leadership as a process and anti leadership development. And, or anti-leader development. You know, there is there is some of that, and so um, I, I just you know I thought that it was an I, I thought that it was an interesting um, interesting counterpoint, specifically coming from someone who, you know, I, I mean Nathan Heller's a journalist. You know, that's not his. So he's not really he doesn't really have uh, he doesn't really have a background in sort of all of the context that goes into that. I just thought that he he set out to evaluate the impact of of recent protest movements, and one conclusion that he came to was that um, is that the idea of uh, he was using the term of a, a sociologist whose name I can't re remember off the top of my head right now, but she's a sociologist at the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill, okay. and she has a term for a current protest called ad hocracy, um, which uh, I, I think is really interesting, and, and she um, really uses that as a really uses that as a you know uses that notion and, and uses this sort of uh, extemporaneous uh, uh, extemporaneous nature nature of many current social movements in in um, contrast to say uh, the civil rights movement which was not uh, you know the civil rights movement in the 1960s which was not a uh, a spontaneous thing you know there's a, a phrase there which uses um, uh, it uses many of the, the protests during the late civil rights movement as very, uh, as very carefully, thoughtfully, smartly mm -hmm. uh, curated acts of theater, um, and uh, and that you know and that that movement was really built around several different you know several different long-term standing institutions that were really you know acting in in concert with one another, um, and and just sort of compares and contrasts that. Now that's protest and that's different, but you know, when you shift from institutions to sort of, you know, Occupy Wall Street, I always thought was interesting for is like inherently specific, intentional leaderlessness. Um, you know, when you compare and contrast those things and you compare and contrast the outcomes, which is what Nathan Heller is doing in this article, I just, 
I thought it was a you know, I just thought it was an interesting discussion about about leadership that I hadn't quite seen framed in that way before. Okay, kind of two thoughts as you're talking um, that I want to follow up on. So one interpretation about the Occupy Wall Street movement is that it was leader-less. But I'm thinking about, I think it's Marshall Gans who uses the term leaderful, right, and it relates to organizing, is if, le- if we're viewing leadership as an activity and that if we are viewing it as particularly leadership um, for within social movements um, as, a collective, as requiring a collective um, effort or we're looking at it as, as, um, at a horizontal kind of level, is the assumption that no one is a leader or that everyone is the, a leader? Right, so I, I think what, in a student, from a student development lens, is that we're saying you don't have to be the leader to be a leader. And and in this example, how how do maybe not in this example, but the question I is when we're trying to create change, how do we help everyone who's a part of the movement recognize that they can exercise leadership with or without authority? and that there's different ways that you can engage and participate, and, and that if leadership is about progress, how are you helping to make progress? Um, you might not hold a title of a, leader, title of a leader, but if everyone is exercising leadership, then what can happen? And, that, and you mentioned, um, you know, that oftentimes there's this uh, almost um, competition between do we think about leadership as a process or do we think about leader development or which do we prioritize? And I would argue that you can't separate them, right? Like we can't do leadership and we can't grow in our ability to exercise leadership without developing ourselves and our own capacities. And so they don't, but if we're only focusing on, for example, my own learning or my own development and not thinking about that for what and for who and with who and how, um, then, then you're just, you know, getting better at something and you're not really actually creating change or creating, um, making progress on something. Mm-hmm. So we're starting to get into a lot of different assumptions about what leadership is and who is a leader, but those are a couple of thoughts that come to mind um, as we were talking. All right. Um, so, uh, yeah, I guess I, I, you know, I guess my, my only sort of thought around that and just to sort of use Occupy Wall Street as, as the example that we've been discussing, sort of as the, as the for what, you know, piece there is that, um, the, I, I think that there are, you know, I guess my only counter to that is that if social change is what you want and if Occupy Wall Street was designed to, you know, change the way that financial regulations work in this, in this country, that that didn't ultimately happen. And there are all sorts of, there's all sorts of contexts and I don't, I'm not here to sort of speak to all of that. I just, you know, if the ultimate goal is social change and is progress, I think it's hard to not argue that that movement in itself didn't achieve what it set out to. And so, and I don't know that like whether there, you know, there are all sorts of reasons for that. And I don't, and I don't think that like whether there, you know, whether the, there, 
you know, it was leaderless or leader full or somewhere in between um, is, you know, I, I don't know if that was the issue. I just think that, you know, you know, Nathan Heller's larger concept there is that, you know, we've got a series of, you know, we're looking at a series of recent social movements and looking at the outcomes from those movements and seeing, you know, like Occupy Wall Street, several that had a ton of energy and a ton of interest and a ton of excitement and people really sacrificing and uh, sacrificing of their day-to-day in order to be able to, you know, walk towards, you know, what they identified as progress and then not ultimately being successful in that. So I guess that that's just, you know, sort of, uh, sort of, you know, what I, what I thought about, um, you know, in talking through that. And and, um, that makes me think too about, I know you um, talked in your last podcast, I think about authority and leadership and I'm thinking about, um, you know, uh, in in terms of adaptive leadership and, and working within the scope of your authority, um, that what I notice is that oftentimes students or or people in general, right? We we either default to authority or we we rest kind of in the center of the scope of our authority and and ex, and expect the people in charge to create change. Um, or we try, or we defy authority, right? We say this isn't working, and we, and so we go into the streets and, um, and and uh, look for a, a, a different solution outside of that. But what we're really not that good at is is deploying authority or partnering with authority, um, or mm. what um, Heifetz calls like dancing on the edge of your authority. And like, how do we? And, and this might be what. Um, Heller is talking a little bit about in the article too, is like how do we work with the systems and structures in place and push the boundaries on those and push those into new ways of operating, more incremental change um, to make progress. And maybe in in the case of Occupy Wall Street, like having to figure out sort of what that middle space is of like um, not just, you know, waiting for someone else to fix it or operating totally outside the system, but like how do we, how do we really partner um, or expand the scope of our, or deploy the, the authority that we have, whether formal or informal, in new ways to try to, to get that little incremental change. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I wanted to talk to sort of uh, get to our fifth question here. I know that you all have a unique approach to leadership study at the Staley School at Kansas State, and I was hoping you could highlight uh, y'all's work there a little bit and, and talk about the Staley Frame for Leadership Study. Sure. So our mission at the Staley School is to develop knowledgeable, ethical, caring, and inclusive leaders for a diverse and changing world. And that mission really guides um, how we think about approaching um, the content and the um, pedagogy and the practices that we have here. And so I would say we're very much influenced around um, by socially responsible leadership and leadership for social change. We use the term civic leadership development as, as really important in our work. And um, we have a leadership studies minor, um, multiple programs, including um, alternative breaks and international teams. And we're also working at our university in partnership with a couple other programs to develop an interdisciplinary PhD in um, leadership communication. But um, I think, again, guided by our mission, um, we're really committed to um, high-impact practices for developing leadership. And we sometimes use the term pedagogies of practice around here, which is basically how do we create the conditions 
for students to learn leadership by exercising leadership. And um, so we utilize uh, different things around learning communities, um, opportunities for peer leadership and peer mentorship. Um, we, we have a long history and commitment to service learning and community engagement. Um, and uh, in uh, integrating, uh, organizing um, as a piece of that. Uh, and, and with that, we're really committed to uh, community engagement that's done in really democratic, reciprocal, mutually beneficial ways. We want to work with community and help our students understand um, how do we work with community to, to create change. And so, uh, so in really all of our classes, we're committed to using different kinds of pedagogies that really create the conditions for individual leader development, but also um, a, a, with a purpose of being able to exercise leadership for something that the students – for the purpose of exercising leadership around the things that they care about most. Um, we're, we're a leadership studies minor because we believe that um, leadership applies in every field. And, and so we want to help students think about how, as they um, enter into their communities and their workplaces, how can they exercise leadership to make progress on, on, on things that matter in the world. Awesome. Awesome. So for the last of our uh, six big leadership questions, uh, you are engaged in a couple of different projects on, some, uh, on a subject that I'm really fascinated by, which is leadership educator identity. Um, what are some early takeaways that you found from that, that process of research and reflection? Yeah, so my colleague Corey Seemuller and I um, have been doing some work over the past few years in trying to conceptualize leadership educator professional identity and conduct some research in trying to understand uh, the impact of that on um, who we are and how we teach and, and, and on our field in general. And we've been working with other colleagues and thinking about um, the field more broadly and, and how do we continue to recruit and, um, main, and retain and develop leadership educators. Um, yeah, so some early so this work was really um, motivated out of conversations that, um, that we were having at conferences, um, bringing people together, and, and asking questions about what do we need? What are we thinking about? What, what, are the, what are the most important factors in our professional development? And we heard over and over people talk about, well, we need development around content. We need to help with our teaching. But there was always this other thing, right, that was more about connection and belonging and understanding who I am in this work and that I'm not alone. Uh, and so as we um, heard these stories and we began thinking, reflecting on our own stories, and you asked me about my pathway into the work, and we, we began to ask other people about their pathways and their journeys, um, we began to notice some patterns as well in, in how people develop a professional identity and moving from, you know, really uh, exploration into, into validation and, and feeling like you're really a part of that community. So we've been exploring that model and learning a lot of really neat things about, um, about people's journeys and, and the things that can um, impact our movement through that journey. One of the really interesting findings we've uh, looked at is this idea of 
of imposter syndrome, right? The, uh, and how people um, are, uh, many people have surfaced, you know, that feeling of, like, I don't know enough or someone's going to find out that, um, that I don't know or a lot of people are, are find themselves um, engaged in leadership education without having formal training. And, um, you know, it, it's an opportunity that comes up and, and they find themselves in this role. And, and so how do we respond to that? How do we support people? Um, because many of us have felt that way at, at different times. And so I think then as we continue to learn more about our leadership, or leadership educator professional identities and, and really um, some of the work we're trying to do is also understand like how does our own leader identity intersect with that. Uh, what we're trying to do is build um, a support, support systems and build ways of reflecting and thinking about our own journeys, trying to understand our journeys and how it impacts our work, and then, but also building a community of practice. That's another thing that really came out is as people have moved through their journeys, they've had mentors, they've had um, strong connections, they've, they've had ways of feeling like, they're, like they belong. And so from a professional development standpoint as a field, how do we continue to build a strong community of practice that helps people in, in their journeys and provides mentorship and support, not just in the technical ways, but in their own identity development as well? Awesome. Okay, well, thanks to everyone for joining us for the NASPA Leadership Podcast presented by the NASPA Student Leadership Program College Community. And thanks to Dr. Carrie Priest. Carrie, if you had one bit of advice to give to an aspiring student leadership practitioner, what would you pass along? My biggest piece of advice to leadership educators is to trust yourself. There will always be more to know. There will always be new ways to do things. Trust yourself that you know your students and your context best, and as you um, seek to develop programs and classes and all of the things that you're trying to do to, to help your students grow and learn, um, just know that in this moment um, you're doing the best that you can. And um, there's always opportunity to keep learning, but uh, but just know we're in this together, and there's other people around you who want to support you. You're part of a community of people who are all on a journey, and so trust yourself and reach out and connect with others and keep learning. Okay. Awesome. Awesome. So you can get more information about the SLPKCA on our various social media outlets, including facebook.com backslash SLEAD, on Twitter, at NASPSLPKC, and on Instagram. Instagram at NASPA underscore SLPKC. And you can also connect with me on Twitter at, at Miles, that's M-Y-L-E-S underscore Surrett, S-U-R-R-E-T-T. And finally, if you're interested in being a guest on the podcast, we'd love to hear more about your program. So please shoot an email to NASPA Leader Podcast at gmail.com. Thanks so much, Carrie. Thank you.